Hey heroes, this is your resident string player, Darian. And this is Angela, your certified brass player. And you're listening to Hero Talk, the show that is here to talk about real life and real women in music. Okay, let's get started. Hi, heroes. Today with us is the great American contemporary composer, Augusta Reed Thomas. I'm a huge fan and I'm so excited to have her here today. She's a university professor of composition and music at the University of Chicago. She has won numerous prizes for her works and her music has been premiered and performed around the world by many chamber groups and orchestras. She's a Pulitzer finalist and she was the longest serving Mead composer in residence at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Her discography includes 90 commercially recorded CDs and has been permanently secured as a composer in the pantheon of American composers of the 20th and 21st centuries, according to music critics. And we are so excited to have you here today with us. Oh, well, thank you so much, Darian and Angela. I'm really honored to be included in your podcast and to be able to meet you in this forum and to be able to meet your listeners. Thank you. Oh, well, honestly, <laughs> I'm, I feel like I need to say thank you more than, than anyone else. I have to like be careful not to fangirl too much. I have played a lot of your works because I'm such a huge fan. You're probably like my favorite living composer right now, which is I totally relate to your music and I just love it so much. And I'm mm-hmm. so excited to be talking to you. You're, um, you're such an inspiration. Well, I am very humbled by your <laughs> words and... You know, I really love writing for violin, Darian. I I appreciate that. (laughs) As you figured out, since you've probably played a bunch of them, as you referred to. So um, I deeply appreciate that you've taken the time to learn them and, you know, embody them and share them with your audiences. Mm -hmm. And thank you. Yeah, I've uh, we recently played Plea for Peace actually yesterday Mm -hmm. um i've also played the toft serenade and me and my pianist had a really good time with that one (laughs) uh i've heard that one's hard (laughs) yeah oh we had a good time too though Uh, my pianist was like okay okay i have to actually practice this (laughs) and then he was like i get it i really like it now (laughs) well thank you so much it's it's such a beautiful instrument the violin and the rich history Mm -hmm. the repertoire uh, myriads of composers have written so well for it. And then the combo of violin and piano, as is in Toft Serenade, mm-hmm. um, again, classic uh, instrumentation. And what I was trying in that piece to do is really just do it my own way, as it were. <laughs> you know, and as you well know, it's a short piece, but the first half is extremely lyrical and yeah. sort of long lines on the, on, on the string in the bow arm mm-hmm. and then the second movement is really virtuosic oh and yeah fast yeah. and flourishing in both parts so it's kind of a two-part little recital piece <laughs> oh yeah it's it was really fun to play and as well it's really engaging and I also really appreciate that you write like the same piece for different instruments like I've played incantation and I know that it's not only for violin which is I which is really nice um, what inspires you to do that to write for the same piece for different instruments Oh, well, thanks again. Yeah, with Incantation, which is a solo violin piece I wrote about 32 years ago, I think. I mean, Mm -hmm. literally a million years ago. (laughs) And it was made 
for a very particular occasion that was quite moving and it, it's like a five minute sort of incantation in some ways <laughs> i guess very like a cantalina line or, or something but with quite a lot of emotion in it as well oh yeah but i guess maybe 20 years ago a violist is like oh i've heard your incantation so many times i want to play it <laughs> so i was like oh okay so the reason i made the viola version is thanks to a violist who yeah. said they wanted to play it and then the, there was a bunch of cellists they're like oh my gosh i've heard your piece on so many recitals can you make a cello version? I love that. <laughs> so there's a cello version. Yeah. And that's one of the, the joys of writing for strings is that some works can really transfer. Others can't, of course. Mm -hmm. But in that particular case, the reason to make the versions is pretty much performer-driven. Yeah. Um, for instance, you were so kind to say, Darian, that you played um, Plea for Peace, which oh. is for obligato I love um, that piece. soprano, which is without text so it's a vocalese mm -hmm. now there's a great tradition in music history of vocalese compositions for solo voices and also inside the chorus but um in this case people have said oh can i play the vocalese part on flute or can <laughs> i play it on trumpet or can yeah. i play it on oboe wow or I, oh, I really want to do this vocalese part so basically anyone who has the sopranos range can just play the vocalese part with the strings, which is either string quartet or string orchestra. So it's really been performer driven. And I'm very grateful to performers when they write me and they're like, oh, I heard your piece. And can, <laughs> can I, you know, it's such a nice email to receive. Oh, I loved that piece. I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, I have to do this at some point. I just, it was so moving to listen to. And I love how you create like this sense of space and like this yeah. atmospheric sensation. I almost equate to the sense of like environment almost like when I'm listening to your music, I feel like it's really inspired by nature and that might just be me as a listener. I don't know if it, you would say that's accurate or not, but there's like, there's such a sense of like sublimity and sense of like grandeur, almost like when you experience a beautiful place in nature and then listening to your music, I feel like it embodies that same feeling. Uh, that's something I feel. How, how would you say that's accurate in some ways? Well, thank you for saying so. I feel music very deeply in my body. I've been, I've been playing music my whole life and, and experiencing it and thinking about it and making it. So I feel that the sources of inspiration are varied and yet certain things are the same. And your point, Darian, about it being inspired by nature, I think is a good one. <laughs> but I don't like my pieces to be specifically about something, you know, I, they're more evocative generally. So I might have a piece like ritual incantations or spirit musings or, you know, dance foldings, so, so something like this, sun dance, sun something, star box, mm -hmm. wh whatever, like, you know, things that are pointing toward nature, but they're not telling you exactly what they are. So, and I think if we, like, I'm looking outside my window right now, and a tree is a very good composition teacher. I like, like how that. it's organic, how it's growing, how different patterns are evolving, how no two trees are the same, and the energy flow within it, and the balance, and the relationship between the form and the objects, and the energy flow in it, and so on and so forth. So, I think to be inspired by nature is very natural because you know you if you look out at the stars or we recently had full moon um it's just there's so much to learn mm -hmm. yeah 
Like your piece, um, Brio for Orchestra, that's dedicated to Caroline K. Buxman. Palm, sorry. When you're writing a piece that's dedicated to someone, do you find yourself trying to write in the personality of like that person? Does Brio describe Caroline? Or what influences you with a piece like that? With Brio, I was so fortunate that the Des Moines Symphony Orchestra asked me to make a piece in her honor. And I was very fortunate that it was commissioned by her two children, Anne and John. And it was a fun occasion to celebrate Kay uh, with a new piece. And so I wanted to do a piece that was full of life and brio. That's why I called it brio, spirit mm -hmm. and energy and flair, because Kay is one of the most beautiful, kind, generous, radiant, really brilliant, totally engaging people. You know, you can't, I wanted to write something unique and energized and yet i'm not trying to portray her in the piece but i just wanted to give her a piece that was of those qualities mm -hmm. and the piece is basically about a 12-minute crescendo and oh. it's all fast mm -hmm. um <laughs> it's a little bit like big band meets bebop meets stravinsky meets ravel or something if you put all that in a wearing blender and spin it around i think you'll end up with something along the lines of brio but it's also very virtuosic mm -hmm. it's one of these pieces as a player which i know you'll both relate to darian and angela where like the train has left the station once it starts you just hold on for your life and you just play <laughs> the piece you know it's one of those okay <laughs> and I, as a player myself i like those sometimes i mean you don't want to do it every time but it's just it's a it's a virtuosic showpiece a little bit like a big fast section of a stravinsky ballet yeah. or you know a section of the miraculous mandarin that's mm. all fast or mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know this the fast movement of Shostakovich 10th symphony or something yeah. like that you and know, the, it just keeps going and the map of the form that I have for that piece I, it kind of shows that yeah <laughs> quite literally that it just yeah, it exactly. just grows just gets, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger so it was super fun um recently the Chicago symphony did it in a fantastic performance and it's been done by about 10 different orchestras so one of the things that makes me very happy is that the piece is you know still very much alive and breathing mm -hmm. because as you both know writing these big orchestral pieces is a lot of time and energy and effort and love and so forth and because this is 12 minutes of all fast music it's equivalent to like a 25 minute regular piece where half yeah. of the music's slow. Oh, yeah. In other words, you know, when it's all fast music, it's just so many pages and so many notes. Yeah, I, I really liked it. And um, it's beautiful. I also wanted to ask, cause you've been played by so many chamber groups and so many orchestras. And like you just said, like that piece was played 10 times. And I've heard from a couple composers that it's not the first time a piece is premiered. It's like the ones after that that are the hardest to achieve. When did you feel like you got past that point and that your pieces were being performed very regularly? That's a wonderful question. It is correct, I believe, what you said though, Darian, that it is very hard to get the second performance because mm -hmm. often people want a commission and they want to do the world premiere. And a lot of pieces are kind of one and done, mm -hmm. yeah. you know? And composers work so hard at these pieces that maybe five years later, someone does it once and then like, maybe it's never done again or it's done once more or something. And it's just so much effort to put in. And sometimes, you know, the world premiere is fabulous with a great recording. You know, sometimes it's fabulous, but you can't use the recording. You can't share it with anybody. Sometimes it's not the world's best performance, but you 
didn't get a record. You know, it's like hard to get the piece out unless you have a great recording and a mm -hmm. great um, performance. So it's tricky. And, um, you know, these orchestras these days play so well. Mm -hmm. These musicians are off the charts good, just tremendously good. Um, so, you know, most often the performances are just dazzling. But I think it's very, very nice when somebody picks a piece out and they're like, oh, we'd like to do that one again. Oh, I heard your piece, this or such and such, you know, EOS or Radiant Circles or Brio or Dance Foldings or any of the orchestra pieces, Astral Canticle and so on, and just programs them. It's it's the happiest thing to to receive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, do you find yourself writing more commissions now in your career? You know, I have been really fortunate, and I'm aware of my good fortune, and I'm very humbled by it. But I think everything I've written in the past thirty years, at least, or thirty maybe longer, thirty five, has been commissioned. A hundred percent of the pieces. Wow. Yeah. And I don't know how I got so lucky. Uh, you know, I'm knocking on wood, hoping that someone will continue to commission me because I've been so lucky. But I love making music and I like to make it for a commission. Like, like in other words, I know who's going to play it. I know who I'm working with. I know when the concert is. I know what else is on the concert. I can envision the evening or the afternoon or whatever it might be, the, the, the space in which it will be played or the event. And so often, you know, without a commission, people wouldn't know who would ever play it or where it might be played or when it might be played. And especially these massive orchestral pieces and chorus and orchestra pieces, it's it's just so much work. You you really want to know when will it will be played and so on. Yeah. So I have been really, really fortunate. And I guess that is any composer's favorite That's email fair. or phone call <laughs> when yeah. somebody says, we'd like to commission a new work from you. Yeah. Yeah. Um... From your violin concerto number three that was premiered by the National Symphony Orchestra, do you find yourself writing when you're writing for any kind of ensemble? Do you find yourself writing with that ensemble sound in mind? Yeah, I do. I try to really get into the vibe of whoever I'm writing for. Like, how do they play? Are they, you know, some players play very bravura. Some players are very kind of like interior and sort of um, reflective. Other players are fast and flashy and, you know, quick fingers and yeah. other people are, you know, it's just everybody has their own thing. And so I really try to feel the essence and like I listen to all the recordings and I try to watch all the videos and talk to the artists and, you know, what do they want and, and try to tailor make something like a good tailor would make a, a shirt that fits well or something like that. It, that interests me to try to, to do that. Now, on the other hand, um, you want to make a piece that others want to play yeah. and mm -hmm. might play. So if you can write a piece where you put your soul into it with excellent craft and care and vision and your own voice and hopefully a sense of beauty in, in the most generic sense, it, you know, it might be a piece that's, I don't mean it has to be beautiful per se, but like depth, the depth of a, of a cosmic beauty or something like that, other people can hopefully relate to it and hear it and think, oh, I'd like to play that one. That's the one I want to put on my recital or that's the one I want to tour with or if I'm going to make a recording, that's definitely the one I want to add to my album or whatever it might be. So you you kind of want to you know make what you feel is right in your heart also. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that's important to keep in mind, for me anyway, is that I only want to put out pieces that I feel good about. 
Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean anyone else has to like them or play them or anything, but at least I feel that I gave it everything and that I believe that I crafted it for what it is to the best, best, best of my ability. And one of the reasons for that is I travel a lot. I mean, the the primary reason for that is the obvious reason. But when you travel a lot, you don't really want to fly all the way across the country to hear some piece that you don't even believe in. Mm-hmm. And you like get off the plane and you've flown through a thunderstorm and the taxis, you can't get one <laughs> in the hotel, you can't check in. And then you show up over there and then you're like, oh, I don't really like this piece anymore. Sorry, I wrote it when I was a kid. And then the players have spent all this time learning it. You know, that's just not good for the players, for the, you know, any of it, the human energy. Mm-hmm. So I feel like every piece on my website, I really stand by. So if somebody says we're playing this piece and will you fly across the country to come to our recital or something, then I'm like, okay, at least I would feel good about the piece. Mm-hmm. And that's just healthy for my own life. Because when you travel as much as I do, it's important to feel that you put your best foot forward. And in your violin concerto, which I, w- I really liked it first <laughs> off, I, I almost felt like listening to it, it was almost, it didn't feel like like this big virtuosic violin concerto, it almost felt more like a chamber piece with like these moments of where, where the orchestra takes over and it's almost like there happens to be a violin solo going on in this wonderful orchestral work. I mean, what inspired you to write a piece kind of like in this sense where the the violin is a part of the orchestra, not separate from it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I've written three violin concertos, and one of my concepts was to make all of them very different. So the first violin concerto called Spirit Musings, which I wrote almost 30 years ago, and it was premiered with a beautiful recording by the Tanglewood Music Festival, is a piece which really any community orchestra or student orchestra or just community, you know, it's not that technically hard. Mm -hmm. And it's all in three movements that last like 14 minutes, you know, fast, slow, fast, and very, very colorful and ornamental. And it's a piece I I still really like, actually, even though I was a kid when I wrote it. (laughs) Anyway, the second violin concerto called Carol on Sky was premiered by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra conducted by Oliver Nussen, who was also my teacher along the way. In any case, the idea with that one was to make an entire concerto in eight minutes, like of a beginning, a middle, an end, different movements, a cadenza, the whole thing in eight minutes. And there's this wonderful quote, I can't remember who said it, but they said, I'm so sorry I wrote you a long letter, <laughs> but I didn't have time to write you a short letter. And I understand that because to write a short letter, you really have to craft it and hone it and reduce it and so on and so forth. So with the second violin concerto, like it's exactly that. I wrote a short letter that's like every, it's like a perfect little poem or something where every dot and dash and so on and so forth. So with the third violin concerto to which you referred, it was yet a different thing. And in this piece, we have six percussion, Mm. two harps, celeste and piano. Yeah, it was huge. And it was awesome. <laughs> it's huge. So those eight players are like force field, and they sit in a semicircle around the back of the orchestra as a kind of team. And so you'll have like vibraphone mixed with marimba, mixed with a crotal, mixed with a high celeste note, mixed with a harp harmonic, you know, and it like flickers around. That's why I was imagining it's called juggler in paradise. Like there's some kind of dancer or a juggler that's floating through paradise and you have all these flickering colors. And this is a much larger work, obviously it's for full orchestra, Mm -hmm. but it 
only lasts 18 minutes. And the idea with this piece was to really have the violin be the protagonist. And so it starts with just solo violin. Mm -hmm. And little by little, the violin, as it were, uh, seduces or something like that, the orchestra, like a juggler or a magician, like yeah. play with me. And it starts to build up and build up and build up more and then get faster. And then another phrase gets faster and more elaborate. And then it just has this huge, it just, just keeps going for 12 minutes in this big crescendo. And then there's like a five minute, very lyrical, floating, resonant, um, evocative denouement. And so it's very sort of specifically shaped in terms of like the energy flow. Once you build up that amount of energy, you need, you know, four to five minutes to let it dissipate yeah. back to silence. <laughs> and um, so it's very much a showpiece for the violin because the fiddle, as you said, plays almost the entire piece. Yeah. Except for when the orchestra is in the most loud moments, in which case they're hawking back and forth in a kind of Stravinsky-esque mm -hmm. way. You're right that there is a lot of chamber music. I don't like to double. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I trust that the trumpet will play their note perfectly. <laughs> it's going to be just perfect. And then, you know, the next note is played by the clarinet. And then that one's a perfect note, too. And then instead of having, like, the trumpet double the clarinet, which doubles the oboe, which doubles by the first violins or something, yeah. you end up with something that's a very different kind of feel this is more like a Sarah painting mm -hmm. every little dot doot, 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 adds up to this huge sonic image but each player is responsible for their dot i'm exaggerating slightly but it's <laughs> it's more like that yeah. than everybody just like one line that everybody doubles yeah that's one thing i really liked about it, it didn't feel like this concerto where the orchestra was accompanying the soloist mm -hmm. it felt like they were all like the soloist is just as involved with this creating this piece. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In a way that it, the soloist is the protagonist, as yeah. I said, or kind of the 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 spinner of the web, uh, mm -hmm. the juggler. It's like the it's like the violinist throws out a ball, and then the orchestra picks it up, and then the violinist picks up another ball and starts juggling two balls, and the violin picks up the sec the orchestra yeah. picks up the second mm -hmm. one, and then. The violin is juggling three balls <laughs> and and it sort of goes like that so it meant much of the piece turns out to be quite dance-like and animated rhythmically and full mm -hmm. of color and sort of inner life and then in contrast the whole long lyrical ending has a whole another kind of feel to it in a way but all those bells of the six percussion piano celeste and two harps continue oh and that was so much fun there are moments where i was like am i listening to west side story with, with the percussion yeah. <laughs> i loved it um speaking yeah thank you so much it's so interesting because i wrote the piece maybe I'd, I'd have to look it up but 18 years ago or something oh, wow. a long time ago and i've been fortunate it's been played several times and there's a recording of it i'm so glad you asked about it both of you because in january of 2023 which is very soon from when we're recording this interview, the album is going to be released. And it's a fantastic album of my complete solo violin works, of which there are nine, and Violin Concerto number three. So it's kind of a, a, a gusty violin disc <laughs> featuring an, a phenomenal young violinist and an amazing orchestra. And like, I can tell you more about it, but generally I'm delighted to speak about it. And I hope yeah. some folks might you know, find the album. I'm sure all the violinists out there are very excited. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know I am. One thing I wanted to ask you is how do you keep up with such a high output of works? Like, how do you stay inspired? And what is it like on your off time? Do you even have off time? <laughs> 
You know, I love writing music so much. I could just do it all day, every day. And I love working with players and collaborating and doing rehearsals and making recordings. And oh, I just love it so much. <laughs> so in a way, none of it's work. It's just my life. It's just who I am. Mm -hmm. And typically, I not typically, like always, I'm at my desk by 4 a.m. I just get up wow. really, really early. Oh my gosh. And I don't like set an alarm. I'm just, I gotta get something done. Oh my gosh, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. <laughs> and, blah, blah. and I usually work till at least 10 at night. And I do that 365 days a year. I mean, it's just very, very busy. Um, in terms of the pieces I'm writing, the pieces I wanna write, making recordings, editing, lots of travel. I also teach at the University of Chicago, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm and I love my students dearly. And in addition, I tried and over the past 30 years and continue to work at doing things for other people, like building the Music Now series or you know, building the Ear Taxi Festival. And I serve on lots of boards. And all of that's you know, volunteer work. Mm -hmm. At the University of Chicago, I built a center for contemporary composition with an ensemble with postdoctoral fellows, visiting distinguished guest artists, visiting ensemble. It's like a huge, massive, project so you know all of that i'm trying to do to support other artists so between gusty the composer gusty the teacher and gusty the <laughs> i don't know the citizen or whatever you want to call it <laughs> it's it keeps me literally swamped every day all day sounds like you enjoy it though so that's good <laughs> no i do i do it, it's just a lot it's very it's like it's intense i can promise you that i still can't imagine waking up at 4 a.m and being productive <laughs> going to bed at 10 11 probably yeah um no it's it's a really good time of day it's the sun isn't up yet i sit at my piano and i watch the sunrise and i improvise and um sing like i'm a terrible singer but like scat <laughs> scat and nice. sort of dance the rhythms and embody the music and figure out what i'm doing so it's it's good and i'd love to just stay from four and just keep going but usually by about 10 30 I'll stop, have some food, take a shower, and then either run to the airport or run to the university or <laughs> wow. start doing other things. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of like sacred morning time. Oh, I love that. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask is, how would you describe your compositional style? Wow. <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> I know. Well, you have so many works and they're all so different in a way, but they all sound like something written by Gustory Thomas. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, thank you for saying that. I mean. I don't rewrite the same piece again. I'm definitely a composer where if you commission me, you're going to get an original piece, an Augusta Reed Thomas piece for better or worse. <laughs> and it, you know, and it's going to be a new piece, a new adventure. And yet within that, it's definitely my voice. I've been in the same voice. I don't know if this, these words are very hard to, to speak about, but mm -hmm. I wasn't a composer that was okay, now I'll be a somethingist. And like mm -hmm. next year, I'll, I'm going to, ooh, everybody's making money as a something elseist. I'm going to jump over on that bandwagon or mm -hmm. the people who are getting commissions are all like doing this kind of music. Oops, I better do that kind of music. <laughs> I never followed any fads. I never put peer pressure on anyone. I never ex took anybody's peer pressure if they were giving it, which, you know, not that anyone was, but you know what I mean? I just have had my own vision since I was a little girl and I've just stuck with it and tried to get better and better and better. So there is definitely a voice there, yet it's not the same piece being rewritten. And I think you asked about how to describe it. Some of the characteristics of it 
I could maybe list a few and <laughs> see if you agree, but I would say um, the works are hopefully, well, I'll just say what I think. I think they're musical. They're just musical. You can hear that I heard the notes, that I sang them, that I can play them, that it, it there's just a musicality to it, which really matters to me for music. And I think they're very clean and they're intentional. You can tell I meant like that bar 42 was meant to be bar 42 because I worked all the way over to it. And it's a logical bar, even if it's a prize bar, so mm -hmm. to speak. Um, I think that they're colorful. They're highly nuanced, which you will know having played the music. I mean, like every, oh, yeah. you know, dynamics everywhere, articulations, adjectives, tempos. Yeah. I mean, the, the music is like totally crafted and polished and then polished some more and then sculpted and then sanded and then polished and then polished. <laughs> like that's the way the scores are. But I like that because if I really give you a clean object, you mm -hmm. know what I meant. And then you can like make your magic and you can be like, okay, yeah. now we can take this thing even further. Yeah. You don't have to call me up. I'm like, where's the decrescendo? What is the tempo? <laughs> no, you're no, very I don't clear. Understand. <laughs> like if you look that's at your a, music, it's you have all of the markings like on every single measure that is very clear mm -hmm. of what you want. And it's very nice. Yeah, I, I just feel like if someone commissions me, that's what they're paying for, you know, really, <laughs> oh, yeah. mm -hmm. that they get something crafted. And so I think those are some of the characteristics. And, yeah. you know, yet if we look at the violin concerto number three that we just spoke about, it's one thing, but let's say we were to talk about a piece called Starbox, yeah. which is for four percussion. Mm -hmm. completely different mm -hmm. and this is for four percussionists and what i love about this piece is that each of them has a setup of instruments in front of them and each of those setups have different families so for instance each of the four artists has a mallet like marimba vibraphone um glock or something and then they each have drums mm -hmm. and then they each have metals like triangles or crotals or cymbals. And then they each have a noisemaker. And then they each have a chicken. So it's like a quartet of quartets of quartets of quartets. So it's super, super fun. You can like have everyone suddenly be playing the mallets and really quickly have everyone over on the drums and uh, very, very kind of flexible. So it doesn't sound anything like the violin concerto mm -hmm. or like Toff Serenade. And yet yeah. I think if you heard it on the radio, you'd be like, I think that's Augusta Reed Thomas. So <laughs> that, kind of, that kind of interests me. Yeah. And I also like that you, a lot of your pieces say like with dancers if possible. And I think that I really like that, that you want this like visual representation of your work. What, like, what inspires you to put that in your music? Well, when I write music, I dance. I love that. Like Aww. I feel it. Like I can sing you everything that I wrote. I mean, not well, like, I sound <laughs> like, you know, horrible, but you know, I can really, really feel exactly what I wanted there. Yeah. And I have embodied it. I've put it in my own body. So I, I feel it to be danced. I've always felt that. I hope I get the chance to work with more dancers and choreographers and like people doing recitals, even if it's a, like a solo recital and then have like their friend dance, you know, just to even have to be a huge thing, but just mm -hmm. something on the side of the stage. I just think it's so interesting to see music being embodied when it's so clear that the composer embodied it so deeply. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's fascinating as, and then of course the performers embodying it perfectly. Mm -hmm. So it's just like layers of embodiment that I think are natural extensions of one another. Do you think because of that, you might ever be interested in like writing for a ballet? Oh yes, I would love to write <laughs> for a ballet. Yes, without <laughs> any question. I've done, I've done some dance works 
and I, they've been among the most meaningful things, you know, because of this same reason. But I really would love to work more with dancers or writing an original piece or on pieces that exist and so on. Yeah. Like with Starbucks, this percussion quartet of quartets of quartets, I would think it'd be so great with four dancers. Oh, yeah. Oh. There's like yet another quartet. I think that it would be just such a great show. And of course, when the percussionists are playing, that looks like a ballet too. Oh, true. Yeah. So, so the true. whole thing would be, I can just see how this could look. Yeah. And with visual aspects, I feel like it can make music even more impactful for the audience. Yeah. Absolutely. Starbucks was a memorial of Jacob Druckmann, one of your teachers. And according to my a lot of my percussionist friends, he's written some pretty big standards for the percussion repertoire. Do you find yourself, when you were writing this piece, with some influences of his compositional styles? That's a great question. I honestly wasn't being influenced by Jacob's percussion writing style, to be totally honest. <laughs> because I think I've been writing music for 50 years now, so I'm kind of on the gusty <laughs> gusty train on the gusty vibe you know kind of thing <laughs> as you should so be. <laughs> i i get i get inspired by lots of composers but it always ends up just having to be what it feels right in my own ears mm -hmm. in my own stomach now i love jacob Druckmann's music let me be clear and he was a fantastic teacher you know so of course it would have affected me and so has a million kinds of music mm -hmm. um but what i was just trying to do was make an homage to him you know, in thanks for his having been my teacher. And also because I know he loved percussion. And his son, Danny Druckmann, is a phenomenal percussionist who is in the New York Philharmonic and also on the Juilliard faculty. So it's like a percussion family, so to speak. So when I was thinking, when Jacob passed, I was always thinking, all right, I need to make a percussion piece for him. I just have to do it. And then the Kaleidoscope Orchestra commissioned me and I said, I'd really like to write a percussion quartet. And, and it was sort of one of those things where sometimes you have to wait a long time to get the project all to line up. Yeah. And so that's how that came about. That is so cool. Yeah. I'd also like to ask you a little about your experiences as a woman in music. So what would you say the biggest challenge was that you had to overcome as a female composer? Well, writing music is very hard. <laughs> I think learning the craft and I mean, I practiced for countless hours as a young person and learning about music and then working so hard to write pieces and another piece and then make it better and then polish it and make another and another and another. That's the hardest thing. And it has nothing to do with my gender. Mm -hmm. it, it, it really doesn't. I'm not dodging your question, but <laughs> to be honest, that's the true answer. What What is the hardest thing about being a composer, period? I mean, it's just really yeah. hard. And then also having the stamina you know, to write these huge pieces and proofread them and yeah. edit and and bring them into the world and share them with other people. I mean, it's just so, so, so much work. And mm -hmm. I feel like I can say without being immodest or modest or anything, just like factual. Yeah. I have worked I have worked so hard. I have worked so hard for fifty years. Anyone who's close to me is like, Gusty, you have to stop working. You're going to kill yourself. You know, my husband is like, could we please have dinner? Oh, <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, sorry, my email is beeping at me. But, um, you know, that kind of thing, because I just want to work all day long. And I have. And to be clear, I've done a lot for other people. I don't want to make it sound like I'm just uh, doing Gusty. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, it takes a lot to build a body of work as I've built. Mm hmm and my sister told me when she reads my website she has to take a nap because she's like i have no idea how you can do all the events in 2022 that are listed 
on 2022. She said, uh, I just read that. She's like, I read that list and I just collapse. She, but she, her point is like, Gusty, you know, you got to stop working so hard. Because, but the thing is, I love it. I, I would be, a, if you put me on a vacation, I would be impossible. I would be <laughs> mm -hmm. an absolute nervous wreck. I, and when I get on the airplane, I work the entire time. I go straight to the airport lounge and then I like do letters of reference and do emails and correspond with people and send people what they need. And then like work the entire flight proofreading and then get off and then get on phone calls. And like, I just work wow. like all day, every day. I multitask and I line up, <laughs> I line up meetings while I'm in a taxi and mm -hmm. just try to use every minute. Um, so I think I've worked really, really hard. I think I've worked as hard as anyone on this planet, no matter what their gender is. Yeah. For sure. And I feel also very blessed for people having supported my music. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm just going to keep working really hard. And I also, I don't do any social media. I don't do any promotion. I don't do any Twitter. I don't do anything. I can barely just keep my own day going. So I think when people actually reach out to me and they're like, I really like this piece. I really want to play it can I, you know, then I know it's real. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I haven't been like, can you play my piece? Can you play my piece? So don't you have a concert that would be themed in such a way that you should play my piece? Blah, 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 like, you know, mm -hmm. and I receive those emails as a presenter. Yeah. Um, obviously. So, you know, I just don't do any of that. I feel like if the body of work is strong and if people can access it and if they take the time to, to review, let's say 40 composers or 30 composers, you know, they might actually hit upon my work and then they might, program it or something like that or commission it so i i feel like i want to just stay centered to the hard work and to the music yeah. and then hopefully people will come to me in, in a way that i don't have to you know kind of try to market myself as something or other thing yeah and i think before like the last question before we move on to our trivia with our last remaining amount of time is i wanted to ask um i know teaching is a really big part of like your process like your uh, bio says mm -hmm. And I know there are fewer female composers than male composers in the classical canon. In your opinion, how would you say the best way to go about inspiring the next generation of young female composers? Well, I've taught a lot of young female composers and a lot of young composers of all genders mm -hmm. or sexual persuasions, obviously. And I would just repeat here probably some of the things I would say to them which is be true to yourself, be very honest in your work, and really look inside as to what it is you want to say in your work, and then say it. And don't feel you have to do what somebody else thinks you should do, because in the end of the day, it's not your work. If you're, if you're trying to just mimic someone else or something like that, or please someone. And then I spend a lot of time with my students trying to help them build a great toolkit, yeah. like excellence in harmony, excellence in rhythm, excellence in counterpoint, notation, um, flow, density, instrumentation, texture, dimensionality, and so on and so forth. I mean, a million parameters. So I, I'm, you know, I work very carefully so that my students have an excellent craft. I think before we do the trivia thing you mentioned, <laughs> um, I think to be a really good composer, you need three things. And perhaps you need a fourth, which is health, because if you're not healthy, you know, none of us can do anything. But putting that one aside, and of course you need family and love and friends and all that, but just being more technical about it, I think you need three things. You need an excellent imagination, you need an excellent toolkit, musical toolkit, and you need a work ethic. 
because you cannot have a career in musical composition and not work hard. At least I can't. Mm -hmm. I have I haven't been able to. I've been just working like a crazy person, you know. <laughs> so I see some students that have this amazing imagination, like crazy good imagination, mm -hmm. and the most amazing musical toolkit. They have like harmony and counterpoint and perfect pitch, and they've played three instruments and you know, blah 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 blah. But they're so lazy they get nothing done. <laughs> And then you see somebody else who's got like this amazing imagination and works so, so, so hard, but has no musical background, no musical training and no toolkit. So then that person should be whatever they're going to be, an architect, a poet, a lawyer, a dancer, you know, it's just music is not their toolkit. Mm -hmm. And then you see other people who have an amazing musical toolkit and they work really, really, really hard, just stunning but they have no imagination. They're just doing every cliche in the book. They're just copying every last late, latest fad and everything's derivative and there's nothing fresh about their work. So then you see a student that has all three. Fabulous imagination, amazing musical toolkit, and they work hard. So I like to select students for admissions that have all three. And then I like to work with them for six years and support them vastly in the profession to help them get awards and prizes and commissions and so on and so forth. And not only my students, I would say the same about everybody. So I think that's sort of a nuanced answer, but no, I love that. It's, yeah. Sometimes I'll say to a student, your rhythm is really boring. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You know, like it, it just is great. So, you know, and they'll be like, yeah, I know. And I'm like, okay, so we're going to, we're going to beef up that toolkit for the next six months. And then I give them exercises and projects. And then six months later, they're like, oh, Gusty, thank you so much. I'm so glad you told me. <laughs> Now I'm so much better at rhythm. And I'm like, okay, now what next? Counterpoint, you know, whatever. Yeah. Or color or timbre or density. You know, and so we 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 literally identify things and work on them on the side, like as exercises on the side of what we might be doing in a particular piece. And I feel like I can really help people put tools in their toolkit. Um, and I have done so. And also, you know, even just studying music by lots of composers, you can learn a lot of tools. But when you have to put it in your own hand, so to speak, your own body, you learn a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And you seem so much fun to yeah, work with. Absolutely. I'm like, oh, I wish I was a composer. That We'd have <laughs> such a good time. Uh, <laughs> but now we're going to close out our podcast episode with the fun little trivia that we like to do. So what this is, is just three questions for you. And then I'm going to ask Angela three questions. And whoever answers the most, you know, wins the trivia for this episode. It's not a big deal. But it's just a little fun, a little fun thing we like to do. So we're going to start with you, Miss Thomas. And we're going to start um, with our first question. Uh, according to your bio, what year did you win the ASCAP Rudolph Award? I have no idea. <laughs> I love asking these questions. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a long time ago. Like, uh, let's see. I would guess 1990. Oh, kind of close. 1999. Hey. <laughs> oh, 90. See, that's, I'm hopeless at this. Okay, I lose on that one. Next. <laughs> uh, another one that is going back to your bio. All right. On your website, this is according to your website because it said selected fellowship. So I'm assuming there's way more, which is super impressive. But according to your website, you have how many fellowships listed? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I literally don't know. I can give you multiple else... choice. <laughs> okay, give me multiple choice. Okay. Yes, yes. Was it 5, 20, 13, or 9? Fellowships? Mm-hmm. Boy, that's hard because some things are called fellowships. Some are residencies. Some are this, is and that. I don't know. I'll, I'll go for 13. Oh. That's right. That's, what, that's how many you'd list in. I, I remember counting. 
All right. Um, last one. Which famous composer has two skulls in his grave? Random. Two skulls? Yeah, there are two of them because his head oh. was removed <laughs> and replaced, and then it was later added that they didn't remove the the fake skull. Mm-hmm. It's a famous composer with two skulls in the grave. Yeah, Man, I, you guys are digging up some trivia. I'm I can really, I can give you all I ever choice do as well. music. <laughs> I all I ever do is just keep writing music, so I don't know. I, I'm terrible at trivia. I'll give you um, some multiple choice if you like. Give me multiple choice. Okay. Is it Handel, Haydn, Bach, or Beethoven? Well, I would guess Beethoven. No. Because of like, there's the famous bust of Beethoven everywhere. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. that's what's making me think Beethoven, you know, like maybe they put a bust of his head in his grave or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, no, I don't know. Well, it's not Beethoven. I was trying to think of like the greats. It's actually yeah. Haydn. It was Joseph Haydn. So. Uh, wow. Uh, fun fact Sorry, there. Max. But I didn't know that either. But I was like Googling interesting facts about composers and I was like, someone stole his brain. Yeah. <laughs> you right. see there, I'm just like hopeless at this, but let's let's do um Angela's okay. part of it. <laughs> oh, All right. Gosh. And if you know any of them, she would welcome help. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay. What is something that Bach and Handel have in common? First here's your multiple choice. Okay. Were they born on the same day? blinded by the same surgeon, convicted of plagiarism, or performed at the same church? Wow, some of them are really juicy. I feel like the last one's a safe bet, though. Uh, well, no, actually, who are the composers? Uh, Bach and Handel. Mm. What's the list one more time? The, Born the same day, blinded by the same surgeon, convicted of plagiarism, or performed at the same church? Mm, I really don't know. I'm going to guess. So I'm going to say it's... Convicted of plagiarism? Yeah, I don't know. No. (laughs) I don't believe they were, but you know. They actually were blinded by the same surgeon. They had botched cataract surgery. Oh my gosh. Wow. (laughs) All right. Now, so, uh, Ms. Thomas, we like to play on the fact that I'm a string player and she's a brass player. So, what are the F holes on string instruments? The F holes on string instruments? Yeah. Oh, they're little. Yeah, they're those little. little yeah, they're, they're, oh, that makes sense. Sound comes out of them. Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> so you kind of got it right. Nice. All right. Now, last question. How many violin concertos did Mozart write? Concertos did Mozart write? I'm sure Augusta Thomas knows. <laughs> yes, do you know? <laughs> um, How many concertos? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's hard. I know. <laughs> um. I really don't know. I want to say it's in like the the concertos. It's actually probably not as high as I think you're thinking, oh, really? based on watching your brain work. Fair enough. Uh, we're gonna go with thirty-two. You want to take that down? Down? <laughs> yeah, take that way down. I way down. I believe in him. You could do it. Um, Close, but still wrong. <laughs> it is five. Five. Oh no! So like, did we? Uh, do, are we tied? Yeah, are we tied? Yeah, we are tied. All right. Oh, um, no. Let me think of a tiebreaker off the top of my <laughs> head. Oh, no. Um, all right. How many ballads did Chopin write? The, the uh, Four. Oh. He wrote four ballads. Thank yep, you're you right. Okay. <laughs> I was going to guess four. I didn't even See, give you the you multiple me, choice. If, <laughs> if you ask me like a music question, like that kind of thing, mm-hmm. that's my that's my jam. <laughs> Nice. Oh, dang. Uh, I'll, I'll, if we interview again, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> Unless Angela really, really wants to win yeah. and she writes the questions. We'll see. <laughs> 
All right. Well, thank you yes, for talking you. to us. We were, we really enjoyed talking to you. So inspiring. And as a, yeah. And as a huge fan, it was just, it really made my, not just my day, but my, just as a fan of yours, it really made my, like my <laughs> life as a musician. I was like, oh, I talked to Augusta Reed Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> thank you both. I'm fans of you all. And I'm just <laughs> so honored to be part of this. And I hope that we can make music together. Well, thank you so, so much. Thank you.